Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nat Chang Rinpoche. Chapter 14, Part 2. And with that, we entered the house and I ascended the staircase to equip myself with clothing more to my taste than Roderick's massive, ungainly fisherman's sweater. Soon after I'd come down to breakfast and taken my seat, Todd approached me and apologised. I accepted his apology with what I hoped would seem supreme magnanimity. I was keen that Roderick should have no reason to reverse his new good opinion of me, and, of course, it appealed to my sense of humour to act as if I'd enjoyed the prank. Then Todd added, Of course, when I came back, you'd already gone. I must have been a little too keen to savour this fine bacon, I replied, and continued to savour it. Todd had obviously hoped to insinuate that I departed too hurriedly from the scene, but I could see by Roderick's expression that such a ploy would not be appreciated. Todd wore the look of one who'd received a thorough dressing down, or who, at least, had suffered a grievous loss of face. He'd been judged to have been childish by the lecturer who'd been something of an ally, and I started to feel a little sorry for him. Todd was a fool. I had no doubt about that. But a fool also has feelings. It makes me wince to see people humiliated. Although I considered Todd to be a royal pain in the rectum, I didn't wish him ill. I just wished him away. I wished him to be in Scunthorpe, or Little Wilting Under Marsh, or anywhere other than where I was. Todd handed me my clothes and boots. I nodded, smiled and placed them on a wooden chest behind me. You'd really have walked in here naked, asked Linda. Yes, I suppose my desire for breakfast would have overcome any trepidation I may have felt. I suppose we would have cheered if you had, Sylvia laughed. Maybe I'll give you the opportunity before we leave, I grinned, and we fell to discussing etching and mezzotint. Just before taking my clothes up to my bedroom, however, I noticed that the little subsidiary pocket in my Levi's was empty. I looked around on the floor, but there was no sign of my keys. I always kept them in that pocket. Todd, I ventured, I think you may have lost my keys. I always keep them in this pocket here and they were there when I left my clothes under that tree where you found them. I always check on them, so you must have dropped them somewhere. Todd began to splutter some kind of attempt to rescind responsibility when Roderick interrupted. Well, Todd, here's a fine adventure for you. You'll just have to retrace your steps and find Vic's keys. Maybe this will serve to dampen your enthusiasm for pranks. Todd agreed to look for the keys and asked what they looked like. 
One's a house key, a brass Yale key, and the other is a steel key. That's the ignition key for my motorbike. The Yale key is no problem. I can always get another one made. But the ignition key is going to be necessary to get home from here unless the local garage can manage to do something. The two keys are linked with an iron military clasp that belonged to my father, so I'd not like to lose that. On hearing this, Todd underwent some kind of internal eruption. I've never seen such a glare of undiluted loathing on anyone's face before. All Todd could say was, yes, and with that stalked out into the fields to find the accursed keys. It turned out that Todd made his search every day for an hour or more, but the keys never appeared. I never said anything about it, but decided that I'd have to go and look myself on the last day if Todd proved unable to locate them. The days passed without incident, and as Todd had blotted his copybook with Roderick, he did his best to treat me affably. I responded as if Todd was the finest fellow I'd ever met, and hoped that the experience would mellow him a little. I had nothing to gain from entrenching Rod in his t Todd in his revulsion for me, and, if anything, I thought it might do Todd some good to realise that I was a fairly agreeable human being. I might be weird, but I wasn't politically aggressive in that stance, as some people were. I didn't hate Todd for being a straight and neither did I look down upon him as if I was one of the psychedelic elite. I was simply an art student who enjoyed being an art student. On the morning of the last day, Todd approached me, having searched every day for my keys, and said, I'd think you could help me find these keys of yours. I've spent hours every day trying to find them for you. Certainly, Todd. I'd have looked before, but I was busy with my mezzotint. Let's go and take a look now. Todd looked vaguely surprised, but off we went. We were soon at the place where I took a plunge every morning, and after scanning the area for a moment, I said, You went off in that direction through those willows over there, just before the oak trees. Really? Todd queried. I don't remember going that way. Well, I replied, let's take a look down there anyway. You can if you like, but I'm sure I didn't go that way. I shrugged and headed off along the line I remembered Todd to have taken. I scanned the area at every pace I took and after a while found myself amongst the willows. Then I saw them. I could easily have missed them. It was only the glint of the brass that caught my eye. Here they are, Todd. Search over. There was no answer from Todd. As soon as he heard I'd found them, he stalked off back to the house without waiting. That was no problem to me. 
but as soon as I got back to the house, I discovered why Todd had been so eager to return on his own. I think he just kept them hidden all week so that I'd have to search for them every day and miss out on time for etching. No, Todd, I answered as I walked through the door. I would not have done that. And how do I know that? It would be typical of you to do something like that. No, Todd, I sighed. Typical's the one thing it would not have been. Really? he jeered, tossing his head like a petulant child. Well, Todd, I suppose you'll never know, will you? But whatever, I'm getting back to my mezzotint now. You deliberately hid those keys, Todd threw back at me. But at that moment, Roderick walked in. Todd, Roderick stated in a measured and rather serious tone, you do yourself nothing but disservice by acting like this. I suggest you drop the subject and do something sensible with your time. There was some further discussion, but I heard none of it as I'd already left for the etching studio. He would have deserved it if you had only pretended to have lost your keys, Janet commented. Then, did you pretend to lose them? No, Janet, that would make me as much of an idiot as Todd. It would have been fun, I must admit, but some kinds of fun are only worth imagining. Even then, I've got better ways of passing my time than dreaming up new ways for Todd to hum humiliate himself. Janet nodded in a solemn kind of way and replied, Yes, he really does seem to do that, doesn't he? Roderick wanted our work displayed at the end of the week so that we could all get some sense of how we'd individually evolved. It was interesting to see everyone's work and Roderick commented on each etching. He admired the strong points in each piece and gave critical appraisal of flaws he detected. I found his criticism interesting. I didn't always find myself in agreement with him, but decided that maybe my view was not as educated as his. I liked all the work, even the work of Todd and Veranda. Todd and Veranda's etchings received only faint praise from Roderick. I think, he mused, that you could have been a little more adventurous, both of you. If you look at these other pieces, Stephanie's and Janet's in particular, where multiple etching plates have been used, you will see that much more is possible in this oeuvre. I especially like the way Janet ate a line through the plate at the surface of the pool of water. That made it possible to use two colours quite distinctly, and the result is quite dramatic. It's also important to thoroughly clean the bloom from the etching plate or the result tends to be somewhat smeary. True, I thought Janet's piece was brilliant and I thought Todd and Veranda's pieces looked smeary. I commented how much I liked Janet's piece and how I was definitely going to experiment on multiple plates and split plates. 
Everyone was in agreement with that and there was a distinct sense of inspiration in the air for what would follow back in Bristol when we could get some more time in the printmaking studio. I wondered how my mezzotint would be evaluated. It was the last in the line. And this, Roderick hummed, almost as if he were about to pour scorn upon my work. This really is something of which you can be proud, Vic. Have you ever seen the mezzotints of John Martin? Yes, I saw them in London when I was at school and can still almost see them. They're utterly remarkable. I was quite strongly moved by them. They seem to haunt me somehow. I can see that, Roderick smiled. I think you found your metier here. All the while, Todd and Veranda sat to the side, somewhat subdued. I felt like saying something positive about their work, but felt that it would probably be taken amiss. And then it was over. The evening dinner, the farewell breakfast, and off on the road again. Todd and Veranda vanished from my mind. I purred through the countryside, admiring the greenery, wondering what Dujumrimshe would make of the strange vignettes of human experience that constituted the story of my three years in the West as a Nakba. Would he wish me to recount such events? I suspected that he would not be that keen to hear of every peculiar incident that formed the pastiche of my attempt to live as a Nakba. I was accumulating a portfolio of peculiarly puzzling, what were they, peccadillos, imbroglios, predicaments, contretemps? There seemed to be no word that suited these curious cameos, but whatever word it might be, were these the situations in which I was supposed to be engaged in terms of learning about the culture of my generation? I was certainly in Britain. I was interacting with British people in a setting that was not too far out of the ordinary, at least at art school. But having someone run off with one's clothes had been an intriguing situation. Casting my mind back, I felt that I'd acted as well as I could have acted. Todd had come out of it with egg on his face, but I'd not set it up to work out like that. Was it an accident that I met with what seemed an unusual degree of hostility? Or was it something about me that invoked it? Was this simply life? The foundation year had been entirely free of interpersonal antagonism, but times seemed to have changed. The foundation year had been so innocent in terms of personal interactions. It had been cordial, stimulating and pleasurable. In Bristol, however, normalcy had kicked in. The atmosphere amongst the students tended to resemble secondary school rather than what I had experienced at Farnham. 
No one spontaneously quoted from books. No one stayed on late working. There was no folk and poetry club. I had no real complaints, however, because Derek Crow was a marvellous head of department who became a personal friend. In the end, I came to have a cordial relationship with Roderick Peters, but only after he had adjusted his initial impressions of me and of Todd's welcome and Veranda Nugent. I was never aware which way their relationship with him went after Todd's immature behaviour, whether their dinner assignations with Roderick Peters continued as mine did with Derek Crow, I never knew. I did not pry. I simply continued to be as innocuous as I could with Todd. There was nothing that caused me shame in terms of my behaviour in that respect, other than occasional lapses into wit when Todd became too outrageously obnoxious. The ladies of my year became far more cordial and conversational with me after the etching course at Nettlemere Court. I learnt from this that I had no need to assert anything to anyone in respect of who or what I was. I would eventually be seen as a decent, reasonable, friendly person by any other decent, reasonable friendly person. Maybe that was an aspect of what Dujam Rimshay intended me to discover. <laughs>